This episode of Industry Focus comes to you thanks to NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. With NetSuite, you'll learn how to acquire new customers, increase profits, and finally get real visibility into your cash flow. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com full. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, November 1st, and in the spirit of Halloween, we're breaking down some energy industrial stocks near their 52-week lows to decide whether they're a trick or a treat for your portfolio. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool contributor Jason Hall via Skype. How you doing, Jason? Trick or treat, Nick. Trick or treat, buddy. Trick or treat, Jason. And uh, you know, I wanted to ask you. You know, you, you just moved from California over over across the Atlantic to Ireland. How was it? You know, you have a young son. How was your experience uh, trick or treating for the first time uh, over across the Atlantic? Dublin, Ireland. I, I have to say it was interesting. You know, we had. You know, we were looking at our calendar before we came over, and you know, saw Halloween and started talking about that kind of thing. My son's a little under two, so you know, we love dressing him up in these costumes and you know that kind of thing. And, um, you know, we're like, well, it's, you know, I don't think, you know, in Europe, it's really that big of a deal, but it turns out Halloween is like a huge deal in, in Ireland. And we learned last night, which was Halloween night, um, we're on the seventh, this would be the eighth floor in us terms. So the eighth floor is where our apartment is. We have balconies on both, both sides of the building and they set off more fireworks on Halloween night in Dublin than most American cities that I've lived in set off on July 4th. So that that was a new experience for me, I have to say. It was interesting. What did your, uh, what'd your son think about the, oh, the fireworks and all that stuff going on? He was kind of interested right up until he was ready to go to bed and he was no longer interested. And then he was just kind of mad about it, <laughs> which is pretty funny for a 21 and a half month old to be mad about fireworks. So hey, He's not playing any of that. Um, no. No. All right. Well, well. Before you know, we're going to talk about some stocks near their fifty-two week lows. But you know, with the volatility in the market, I think I'd be remiss if we didn't spend you know at least a couple minutes talking about you know what investors should be thinking about this volatility for their portfolio. And you know, I pulled some stats earlier this week that you know we have almost half of U.S. stocks are more than twenty percent off their fifty-two week highs. And you know, we've had a little bit of, a little bit of a bounce back in the markets over the past couple of days, but that number is still probably holding true. Uh, we global stocks sold off nearly eight trillion dollars in October, which is the most they'd sold off since two thousand and eight. So we're really seeing the return of volatility to the markets. How should investors think about that when looking at their portfolios, and what kind of decisions should they make in these circumstances? Well, I know anecdotally, and I think that's something that's really valuable to share with people. You know, you and I have actually talked about this over the past week as we were planning a little bit for this for the show about our own personal experiences. And at one point when you and I were talking, I guess it was probably towards the end of last week, my portfolio was down like 21, 22% from the, from the peak. And I think at that point, the S&P 500 was down just a little less than 10%, like 9.4% or somewhere at that point. So uh, there are a lot of us that have experienced extreme volatility that's even more than the, the market itself. But within the greater context my portfolio, even at that point, at that low, continued over the long term to outgain the S&P 500 because I don't get caught up in these short-term things and, and start planning exit strategies and that kind of thing because my greater strategies in terms of exit strategy um, is part of a, you know, I'm, I'm 41. I'll be 42 in December. You know, I'm thinking about another 40 years that I'm going to be alive, hopefully, that I have to plan for. And it's just like any other asset that I own. I don't freak out and figure that I've got to sell it just because the market changes. My home, 
I'm not going to sell my home just because property values fall in my neighborhood. You know, for, for, the, for, the, for the way that I've actually looked at this is this is a buying opportunity, especially for younger investors, not even just younger investors, anybody that has, you know, 20 years or more to live. You know, you have to think about growing your assets and growing your value. And this is just another opportunity to look at that volatility, to use it as a tool to increase the value of your portfolio. I just made a substantial contribution to my 401k. And right now I'm actually looking, you know, over the next few days, uh, I'm planning to, to invest, you know, um, a fairly substantial amount of money in, you know, several different companies that I've been looking pretty closely at. Exactly. Jason, I think when we look at stocks, they're one of the only asset classes where the, the price can go down 20% and people are less willing to buy than they were yesterday. Any, so, any other market yeah. out there, it goes on a 20% sale, you're rushing out to buy it. And uh, stocks yep. just don't seem to work that way. But if you can kind of get your mindset over the long term and really focus on what you're trying to do, building wealth you know, over a lifetime, uh, times like this can really create an opportunity for investors that keep that long-term mindset. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, so the first stock we're going to talk about today is Nucor, which is one of the largest uh, steelmakers in the world and the largest in the United States. Uh, They were close to their 52-week low of uh, 53.70 earlier this week. Currently, today they're trading at 59.35. What do you like about Nucor? Is it a trick or treat for uh, investors' portfolios? So it's you know it's interesting. I think I think uh, I'll say it off say right off the bat. I think it's a treat in terms of of a, a great company. Uh, it's absolutely dominant in its industry. It's incredibly well run. Uh, its management has a great history of capital allocation, and it's in an industry where the most important thing that management can do is allocate capital well and manage the balance sheet across the different cycles. So I think you know you and I can talk. We're going to talk a little bit about because of the cyclicality of the steel industry, the impact of tariffs how demand can swing the entire industry from profits to loss in a very short period of time. There are some risks, but in general, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Nucor. I really am. Yeah, and talking about how Nucor has been able to manage their balance sheet, Nucor is a dividend aristocrat. Uh, they've, they've raised their dividend for 45 consecutive years every year, uh, so they're almost to a dividend king. That would be raising their dividend 50 years in a row. Um, and, and they've really, as you mentioned, done a great job of maintaining their balance sheet both when the mark when the steel market is is at its cyclical peak and when it's at its cyclical bottom. And particularly at the bottom, that's where Nucor really shines because having that strong balance sheet, they're able to pick up some inexpensive assets at the bottom of the market. Do you want to talk a little bit about what Nucor has been able to do there um, and what opportunities it's given the business over the long term? Yeah, I think over the past ten years, the the company has invested something like eight billion dollars. Um, primarily in um, in acquisitions, but also in some internal investments and also in some share repurchases uh, to to add value and add per share returns. And the key thing about the these investments is it's it's because management knows the industry really really well. Their CEO has been with the company for you know, multiple decades at this point. Knows steel industry incredibly well. Uh, the company has been able to leverage its balance sheet. Um, we're talking about an investment grade credit rating, which is, I think, I don't think there's any other steel company that comes close to having that kind of, uh, uh, you know, credit rating. Uh, it's able to get access to capital really cheaply, and then it can deploy that capital, um, at the bottom of the market with steel. This is an industry where when the market's down, companies are selling off assets at fire sale prices a lot of times just to keep the doors open. You know, they might be selling off an acquisition that they bought, um, at a high premium, you know, at the peak of the market, you know, you know, a decade before, and Nucor's been able to swoop in and add these bolt-on parts to its business 
that, that add leverage. It's not just about adding scale or adding, adding volume. It's about adding the right kind of um, additional capacity, maybe growing in a segment of the market that it doesn't really have enough strength in or a place that it knows that the market is going to be growing demand. Um, the company's just been really, really good at doing that. And it's been able to use those acquisitions to get really quick accretive returns. One of the nice things about acquisitions, if you do them well, as Nucor has, is that it can turn those, those, those investments into per share extra earnings you know, within a year or so. So that's, that's been a good thing that it's been able to do. And it's been able to push its earnings per share back up to its you know, pre-financial crisis peak um, here over the past few quarters. Yeah, and, and I'll say, just personally, I've had a little bit of experience, you know, uh, relationship with the Nucor acquisition. My girlfriend worked uh, at a subsidiary that was acquired by Nucor a little over a year ago, and so I was able to kind of watch how they kind of put in their company culture, really tightened up ship. It had been a been a family-run business, um, you know, f- prior to that, and once Nucor came in, they really put their culture in place, really did some reforms in the front office to kind of bring things in, and uh you know, it, it's really a well-run business. I mean, it, it was remarkable to see how quickly they were able to kind of change the culture of that business and really get um, efficiency up and going. Um, let's talk a little bit about the cycle again, Jason. Just just to, for yeah. our listeners, we're and we're at a five-year high in cold real cold rolled uh, sheet and strip steel. We're at a five-year high in uh, iron and steel, which that was reached in August. We're also at a five-year high in steel pipe and tubing. So we're really looking like we're at a cyclical top. But again. Um, and, and that part of that is going to have to do uh, with tariffs as well that were put in place yeah. earlier this year. Um, President Trump put in place, I believe, is twenty five percent tariffs on foreign steel, um, and that has really led steel prices to maybe increase more than they would have otherwise. You know, oh, looking no about it. Um, you know, looking forward, how should we think about these tariffs uh, with respect uh, to Nucor? How does it affect the thesis over the long term for the business? So, so I'm actually gonna I'm actually gonna rewind back. You know, we can go back three or four or five years ago. Uh, North American steel demand has been, you know, above you know pre-financial crisis peak. I mean, we can go back to you know probably four years ago um, that the actual demand was much was was well you know at those super high peaks. But because imports were consuming well over a third of the domestic market, the domestic steelmakers were just not getting. The big benefit of that of that high point of the cycle that we had seen in prior years, and we can even go back to under the Obama administration uh, when there were duties and there were um, uh, tariffs, uh, trade actions that were being put into place that were much more um, uh, surgical, targeting very specific kinds of steel out of very specific places uh, that were having some impacts on that, but they were pretty narrow, and the impact. Would, not, would only last for a few quarters, and then you know these guys would figure out how to skirt it again. So I think in general, um, th- these these tariffs have, have been very good for somebody like Nucor because they're so dominant and they're so big. Um, I, th- I think the bigger concern is now that we've seen these massive surges across the board. The question is how much of how much of that impact is going to start affecting demand, you know, and and that's that's where. We could be riding this, and it could, could be another couple of quarters. It could be another couple of years. It's really hard to predict, and I think that's kind of the crux of, as an investor, if you're if you're thinking about the steel industry, this is why Nucor and maybe Steel Dynamics, which is another one that I like, are really you know kind of the only ones that are even really worth considering as long-term investments because so many of the other steel makers like U.S. Steel, AK Steel, 
their cost structures and their manufacturing structures are not set up to do well over the cycles. And they don't have the balance sheets to bounce back like Nucor does when the steel market does get kind of weak. Right, Jason. And, and Nucor's management has really proven over previous cycles that they know how to right. allocate their capital in a way that other steelmakers really have not been able to do, that you can really trust as an investor that they're going to be good stewards of your investment regardless of what the steel market looks like you know, one year to the next. We're already starting to see that um, with, with the shift in their, in their focus over the past few quarters. They've started shifting away from targeting external acquisitions, and they've started announcing these internal investments and adding capacity and adding certain kinds of production in certain areas. Um, that, that these, and these, these projects, they're internal investments, so there's, there's going to be some difference in the payoff. You know, they announced an expansion of a steel mill or a certain facility. You know, it's going to take a few years to build that out, and they're going to spend a few hundred million dollars over that period that they're not going to get any return on that invested capital. So we could actually see over the next few years as they prioritize these internal capital and uh, expenditure um, um, projects, we could actually see a few years where, you know, the return on invested capital actually um, gets squeezed a little bit. Um, but again, that's more more um, an indication that management starting to do the right thing, and they're not overpaying to acquire an asset when they can take that same money and they can develop something in house that's going to pay off over the long term with better returns. Right, Jason, and I think that's an important thing to remember in any cyclical industry is having a management yeah. that can really really navigate those uh, those those cyclical peaks and valleys. Um, on the second yep. half of the show, we're going to talk about a couple more stocks, uh, whether they're a trick or treat for your portfolio. But first. Support for industry focus and the following message come from NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Thousands of the, of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you. The power of the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or phone. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights to overcome the obstacles that are holding you back for free. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com slash full. Okay, Jason, so on the second half of the show, uh, the second stock we're going to talk about is Beezer Homes, uh, ticker BZH. Uh, Beezer Homes is down 59% from its highs on the year, and it's trading at 890 versus its 816 52-week low. Is it a trick or a treat for our, for our listeners' portfolios? You know, I have, to, I have to say, when we first started looking at this, I was really tempted to say uh, that Beezer was a treat, but... I. I just keep coming back to their model and kind of where they focus in terms of, of, of the houses that they build and the market they focus on. And I'm going to say it's a treat or it's a, tr it's a trick. Mm -hmm. And that's for a company that's saying that they're going to generate two and a half dollars in earnings per share next year. So it trades for like, I don't know what, four times next year's earnings. But I don't think they're going to make that. I don't think they're going to get that number. I, I, don't, I don't think their model supports it based on everything that we know about where the housing industry is right now. So I'm going to say it's a trick. Right, Jason. And kind of to kind of pull the thread on where you're going there, Beezer focuses on homes that are a little bit above entry level. Their average selling price is 36 uh, excuse me, $365,000, which is up 7% year over year. That the price is ticking up. Compare that to according to Zillow, uh, the median US home value is $220,000. Uh, so so Beezer is selling homes that are on average 50% higher. Um, than the market, and what we're seeing now is is the age of repeat home buyers, which would be the buyers that would be inclined to not buy starter homes to buy their second home, has been trending up for about 20 years. 
However, the age for entry uh, home buyers has been stagnant at about 32, going back to 1997. And as we're seeing interest rates rise, um, it, it seems it seems to, to be the case that repeat home buying age will continue to tick up. Um, whereas those first time home buyers, those millennials, they're getting ready to get in their first home at age 32, on average. Um, they're going to be where the demand is coming from in this market going forward. What are your thoughts on kind yeah, of that abso- positioning? Absolutely, absolutely, and I, I think I think to a certain extent, Beezer is kind of setting it itself itself up to really miss to miss that market opportunity. Uh, and I, and I know that the company has made they've made some progress and they've made some steps. Their balance sheet continues to be a concern. Um, at the end of their last quarter, the company had like 1.3 billion dollars in change in in total debt. Uh, that's about the same amount of debt as Meritage Homes, which does around 60% more revenue uh, per year. And Meritage also is focusing on the entry-level market. So I think you know, home builders are, are very leveraged companies in general. They buy a lot of property that sits on their books for you know a couple years at a time as they're developing it before they sell it, so they're paying all this interest on it. So they carry a lot of debt and they're pretty leveraged, and 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 they're also more at risk because of that. Because again, it's just like steelmakers, home building is a cyclical industry. Uh, when the cycle goes down, the tide goes out. The the guys that are swimming naked that we find out about are the ones that continue to add property and add debt to add that property that they now have on their books and they're. All of a sudden, they're not selling the property, the homes at the same levels they were, and then that that really becomes a problem. So they've they've taken steps to to ameliorate that sum. They say they're going to pay off another tranche before the end of the year, but they're still going to have one of the most leveraged balance sheets in the industry in terms of debt to EBITDA, um, and they're not shifting their portfolio enough to really meet where I think the market's going to go. Right, and you know I, I touched on this earlier, but you know as as rates you know increase, folks who don't have to buy a home um, are probably going to avoid making those choices. Whereas people who you know want to have a family and just have to buy a home for their for their life stage choices, they're going to be where the demand really comes from. You know, right. over the next three years or so, as we as the market kind of peaks. I think so. And and if you're really interested in so again because of the fact that this is a very cyclical industry, I think anybody that's looking to get a pop return to get a quick you know buy it and get a big return in six months or a year, you know, despite all the obvious un- unpredictable things like who, do- who knows what the economy happens, some surprise that nobody expects out of nowhere that hits the market, you know, all these things that we can't predict, let's, the things that we can definitely, you know, look at are rising interest rates. Um, the, the, the big demand is, is from entry-level buyers. Uh, before I would ever consider buying Beezer, I would certainly look at uh, Meritage Homes, uh, about 85% of the property that they buy is targeting um, uh, entry-level homes, and their average selling price is actually falling, um, which sounds kind of backwards that that would be a good thing, but it's good because it indicates that that their strategy to shift away from um, kind of step-up homes into more entry-level starting to pay off, and they're selling more of these entry-level homes, and that should set Meritage up. Certainly, much better, I think, in the in the near term, and certainly better over the long term uh, as the better as a better investment here. Right, Jason, and and let's let's uh, go to our, our last stock that we're going to talk about today, which is Pattern Energy Group ticker PEGI. Uh, Pattern Energy is down about twenty one percent of its highs. It's a it's a uh, primarily wind and solar energy uh, company. Do you think Pattern Energy is a trick or a treat for our listeners' portfolios? I'm going to say it's a treat, but I could get tricked. I'll be 
honest about that. I'll be blunt about that. Um, if you, if you think about the industry that it's in, it's a renewable energy producer, primarily wind. They're looking to invest in other assets like distribution, storage. They're looking at solar assets. Uh, the, the reason that it could be a trick is it already pays uh, basically all of its cash flows. It pays out in dividends right now. Uh, at the end of last year, the end of 2017, uh, it locked its, it froze its dividend. It stopped increasing its dividend to maintain cash flows. Uh, there have been some things that were a product of tax reform, um, federal tax reform, that have actually been kind of bad for um, renewable energy companies in terms of investments, um, getting getting access to capital. Uh, that's kind of weighing on it. But I like the management a lot. I really do. It's, it has a privately held um, um, company, uh, Pattern Energy LLC, that's a big project developer. Um, that that is that kind of backs it and shares the same CEO. Uh, their CEO has a you know, 25-year history of of developing renewable assets, and I think his skills and the people around him, the skills that they have of of writing out these different markets, should pay off. And, and today you're looking at like a nine and a half percent yield. Um, you know, if you're an income investor and you need that yield, I I'd, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but but I think that big yield, I'm dripping that yield right back into new shares. I think over time it's going to pay off, and 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 once the funding situation kind of clears up, I think this is going to be a market beating stock. Yeah, I want to zoom out and kind of talk about the history of Pattern Energy and kind of how it's gotten to where it is. So uh, you know, it IPO'd in 2013. Um, since that since that date, they've tripled the size of their energy portfolio. Uh, they their their uh, cash flow is up 135 percent since their IPO. Their dividends up 35 percent. All that sounds great. So. But the other side of the coin is, how do they finance that growth? Their share count? Um, shares share and debt, count, baby. Yeah, shares exactly. and debt. The share count is up 92% since IPO, yep. and they yep. borrowed $2.3 billion since IPO, and over half of its enterprise value is now put in place in debt. And as you mentioned, they're paying over 100% of their, uh, or almost 100%, excuse me, of their distributable cash and dividends. So it, this is a company that's had incredible growth, but the way they finance that growth has really left you know, equity investors holding the bag a little bit. Even if you count in the dividend, um, they're o- since IPO, they're only up 10%. Um, but with that growth, they have opportunities to grow going forward. Um, what are your thoughts in their ability to kind of delever that balance sheet um, and their growth opportunities maybe for the next five years? Do you think they're going to have to use as much debt and equity financing to get the growth that they need going forward? So I, I think to a certain extent, management has learned a little bit of a lesson here um, in terms of um, on the private on the private enterprise side, on the public side versus in the past uh, operating as a private you know private business. And I think they've learned that you can't completely rely on equity, you know, selling stock to to fund a substantial amount of your growth. I think that's one of the reasons they decided to just go ahead and freeze the dividend. And let things kind of play out a little bit and see, let the market kind of calm down. Um, but they've also sold off, um, they sold off one of their uh, facilities down in, uh, I believe it's in Peru. Um, Chile. That's going to, or Chile, right. And that they, they sold it at a higher premium than they paid for it, which that's a very good thing. Um, and ideally, they'll be able to use the, the, the proceeds of that to make another investment somewhere else. Um, that's a little closer geographically to some of their other facilities, which will help with other operational costs, which will yield bigger returns. Um, so so I, I kind of expect that they'll be able to be savvy doing that sort of thing. 
But I think the big thing that's going to drive it is just going to be demand growth. Uh, renewables continue to become more cost-effective and cost-efficient in terms of producing power. They're very competitive in most of the world with uh, coal, uh, with natural gas. Um, and that cost-benefit alone, I think, is, is enough that there will, they, they will find access to capital to be able to grow. And over, over term, I think even adding debt and still issuing some shares, they will start to give per share um, cash flow growth. The dividend will start to grow again, and over time, the dividend growth will 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 make this a good solid investment. Sure, Jason. And talking about these risks for Pattern Energy, you know, why should investors look at Pattern Energy over some other opportunities in the renewable space, say ter- a Terraform Power or a Brookfield Renewable, which might not have the same risk profile we're looking at with Pattern Energy? So, I think if if, if you're an investor that's that's willing to take on a little bit more risk, um, I love that. The market's been so down on pattern for for so long that that higher yield. So, for example, Terraform Power, which I love and also own, uh, pays about a six point seven percent yield right now. Um, pattern Energy's yield is about forty percent higher. Um, that's a substantial boost in returns over time. You know, even the, with the fact that Terraform Power should be able to increase its dividend, you know, five to ten percent per year over the next few years, while Pattern's dividend is probably not going to grow for the next two to three years um, at all. So, again, if, you, if, you're, if you're willing to take on more risk, because if things don't get better for Pattern, it may have to cut the dividend a little bit to generate excess cash flow to strengthen its balance sheet. So that's the big risk there, right? But if, if you're a little more risk averse and you're really looking for something that you can buy and, and hold and not have to worry about and that you can pretty regularly just count on your dividends going to go up, I do like Terraform Power a lot. Um, and that might be the better investment for a lot of people simply from that, from that um, you know, peace of mind. Uh, Terraform, power, pattern, uh, Terraform Power is also a, you know, it's a regular S-corp, so you can buy it in your retirement accounts and it's, it's easy to deal with. Uh, Brookfield Renewable, on the other hand, is a master limited partnership. Uh, now, they don't pay um, the, the kind of, there's an there's a, um, unrelated taxable business income, UBTI, um, that some of these master limited partnerships pay out that can make you have to pay taxes even in your retirement account. Uh, Brookfield Renewable doesn't pay that, but some uh, brokers just still won't let you own it inside retirement accounts. So if you're looking for retirement account stocks, you know, Terraform Power just might be the safer investment. Um, Brookfield Renewable is really interesting because it owns like 30% of Terraform Power. So I think that should tell you a lot about um, you know, its, its view in terms of Terraform Power's prospects. They're both controlled by Brookfield Asset Management. It's one of the biggest, most well-known infrastructure asset uh, management companies in the world. Uh, y- you can't beat them all. I just, I think... The higher yield for me, the higher yield that Pattern is paying today, how beaten down its stock is, if you're willing to stomach the risk, I think you're going to get a better, I think you're going to get a better return um, with, with the risk that things could, could kind of turn south. Yeah, Jason, and, and just one follow-up there. What would you say to investors that say, hey, you know, I know, I know renewable is something that's going to grow over the long term. You know, I've seen investments, you know, estimates that to really switch over our carbon-based power power plants, you know, we're going to have to put a lot of investment in that. What would you say to an investor that said, "Hey, I'm just going to do a basket approach with these guys, buy a little bit of everything, and just get exposure to this space?" So, I think if you're if you're looking at these yield codes, these the in, these independent power producers, 
I think that's a reasonable approach. I think, you know, we've seen a lot, a lot has shaken out in that space over the past two or three years. And because frankly, there were several, you know, like 8.3 energy, um, which was, uh, sun power and, um, first solar that was their shared yield co it, you know, investors, but most of that, a lot of investors lost money there. Uh, the Terraform power was, you know, <laughs> was a terrible investment until, uh, Brookfield asset management took it over. Now it's turned into what looks like it's going to be a great company. I think now it's a pretty reasonable way to look at these yield codes. I, I wouldn't do that with the entire renewable energy space because you look at solar panel makers, for example, that's still a scary space and it's kind of the wild, wild west. And there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of the Chinese low cost solar manu- uh, panel makers that, I mean, I wouldn't pay a dime for a dollar's worth of their stock. So I think with this space, it's, it's a reasonable approach. Awesome, Jason. Well, I know this renewable is something we're going we're gonna to follow you know, over the next few years, and I'm sure I'll have you on. Later on, to kind of kind of break it down once again, I uh, hope we've given investors, you know, we gave investors a couple treats and then one trick to watch out for in their portfolio. Uh, if there's any other, you know, businesses y'all want us to y'all want us to cover, you know, tweet us at MF, MF Industry Focus, and we'll be happy to uh, answer whatever questions you have. And great to have you on the podcast, Jason, and looking forward to having you on again in the future. Always fun to be on. Cheers. Take care. Thanks so much. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any of the stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Uh, thanks to Steve Broido for his work behind the glass. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.